welcome to another edition of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMA LOT. And this week, we're going over UFC Orlando, which is headlined by two welterweight fights in the main event. We got Kevin Holland taking on his stiffest competition to date when he's going up against Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, who I'm sure is thankful to finally not fight a grappler. And in the Coleman event, we have the return to the welterweight division for Rafael Dos Anjos trying to make one last run for a title. This will probably be his last chance, but couldn't get a better stylistic matchup for him to make that re-entrance into the welterweight division by taking on Brian Barbarena, who's on a Legends Tour, it seems like, as he defeated Matt Brown two fights ago, and then Robbie Lawler in a slugfest in his last fight. So uh, Dos Anjos looking to utilize his full mixed martial arts game to go out there and defeat Brian Barbarina. A couple other interesting fights sprinkled out throughout this card, which is going to be taking place in front of a live crowd, which is not the usual for fight night cards, but that's what we're getting here. And it seems like the UFC has bolstered this card so that they so that they can sell the maximum amount of tickets once it comes to fight time. But before we get into the breakdowns, let's go over the last two events in terms of a betting recap so that we can look on forward as well uh, and hope to continue this momentum of a two-event two winning streak that we're currently on. So let's go back two weeks ago to the Kennedy and Zetsuku and Iwan Kutelaba fight card, which turned into that fight card after Sergei Spivak and Derek Lewis was cancelled right before the main card was about to begin due to some sort of health scare from Derek Lewis, which I haven't really found out what the uh, genesis of that was to begin with so hopefully some news comes out about it soon enough and hopefully Derek Lewis's health is in tip-top condition so that he can come back and do what he does best and that's knocking fools out all right let's get to this card like I said which took place on November 19th uh we'll go from the bottom here uh, according to my bet MMA tip stop page and it starts off with the parlay that I had 2.16 units at minus 108 first like was the Jack Della Maddalena and Danny Roberts fight to not go to a decision that was coming in at minus 330 have no idea why it was why it was only minus 330 knowing the durability issues of Danny Roberts and the stylistic nature of both of these guys and how how they like to go out there and slug Jack Della Maddalena goes out there and knocks out Danny Roberts great win for us to start off that parlay and then Waldo Cortez Acosta I believe it was the co-main event if I'm not mistaken or at least the third fight from the top that night where Waldo goes out there and pitches a perfect game you know similar to his uh baseball roots from which he started his athletic career and now he's transitioning over to MMA and looking to be a very good prospect utilizing his uh boxing utilizing his output his kicks all of that good stuff he has a very good striking game and utilizes it very well especially at the heavyweight stature that he's currently at so that cash is for 1.99 units two units if you want to call it that straight up uh, then let's move on to the only loss that we had on the night, which I believe was the first fight of the night. I had a one-unit play on Teresa Boletta at plus 150. I was not anticipating a cardio dump from her the way that she had that night. She, uh, you know, had a good first round, but after that, it seemed like her cardio was starting to slow down, and Natalia Silva was able to piece her up on the feet, eventually finishing her in that third round. So good work from Natalia Silva, but I know that there will be a better version of Teresa Bleda the next time we see her in the cage, and hopefully this performance will make people overreact and give us an even better line on her next time, as long as her opponent is a good stylist matchup for her all right next up it's all about winners from here two units on uh 
what do we have here? Brady Heastand going up against uh, Fernand or Fernie Garcia, if we want to call it that. Uh, good win for Brady going out there, uh, you know, showcasing his wrestling, showcasing his boxing. Great win for him. A closer fight than I expected, to be honest, but I'm happy that I only tied two units to that. So that comes out for a 1.33 unit profit. The dog of the night play comes through for your boy with Vanessa Demopoulos cashing at plus 105 at one unit for 1.05 units. Exactly how we expected that fight to play out, right? Demo, getting takedowns, controlling Maria Oliveira from on top, showcasing good enough striking that she could stay safe in that realm, but she did her best work when she was able to get the fight to the ground, and uh, that's what I was banking on. Luckily, it comes to good win for her there. And then lastly, two and a half units, biggest bet of the night, comes uh, comes in the most controversial decision of the night. Charles Johnson cashes for 1.61 units at minus 155. Uh, Close fight. I mean, very close fight. I'm, I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head. I believe round three was Charles Johnson. Round one was Jumagulov. Round two was the uh, was the round where we had a lot of stoppages because of uh, in unintentional fouls. And I think that's ultimately what caused the judges to give that round to Charles uh, Johnson because Jumagulov started off the round great. But after all those pauses and all those, uh, you know, those hiccups in the action and the flow of the action, Charles Johnson was the one that ended off that round a little bit more emphatically landed more output landed more damage and that likely outweighed what happened earlier in that round to the judges which is why charles johnson ended up getting his hand raised i'm not gonna scream robbery here i'm not gonna scream anything people can say what they want about this we all know this in the long term these end up evening out or at least bouncing out in your favor especially if you're able to call the right spots and you know closer fight than it should have been but i'm glad to come out with the cash that uh in that fight so all in all plus 4.99 or plus five units for a 58 percent roi on ufc vegas 65 happy with my performance there would have obviously been great if we got a full sweep there if Teresa bleda was able to come through but we still go out there and have a very good performance but we did have another event the pfl world championships which took place this past friday and uh if my patreon members already know and i appreciate everybody that's already upgraded i announced last week or two weeks ago at this point now that i'll be taking on regional mma promotions which includes pfl lfa cage warriors cffc and fury fc all which will be under a new patreon tier uh for the extra work that i'll be putting in for you guys and it seems like a lot of people were happy with the uh performance that they got from us so uh, we got plus 4.15 units in total here on that card. Let's start off with the losses. We had a one-unit loss on uh, Matthias Shuffle as my dog in the night play against Antti D'Elia. Uh, you know, I was impressed with his ability to strike with a lot of guys, but uh, it seemed like he could not deal with that power of D'Elia. D'Elia puts it on him and gets him out of there. You know, I thought uh, I was impressed with Shuffle's ability to stop takedowns and get back to his feet throughout his uh, researching his tape, but D'Elia still has the big power in his hands which he was able to showcase and that was the end of the night for shuffle so minus one unit there at plus 275 big underdog shot i thought i thought i'd take the shot there minus 1.50 uh, 1.05 units sorry on marlon marais who has a good first two rounds there grinds out shaman but he just does not have the durability nor the chin to withstand big power from his opponents anymore and that's what happened in that third round credits to shaman marais for coming back after those tumultuous first two rounds but marlon marais i can't back you any further i apologize 
Um, let's get to the 2.5 unit win, or sorry, 1.47 unit win on the 2.5 units wrist at minus 170 on Brendan Lognane. Uh, very stellar performance from there. Exactly what I expected out of him to slow down Bubba Jenkins as this fight went off uh, and then eventually finished him later on in that fight. Great performance from him there. I wish I went with that round four uh, sprinkle as well on him as I knew he would finish this fight late and we probably would have gotten great odds for it as well. But Brendan Loughlin showing that his takedown defense is up to snuff and that his striking is tough for a lot of opponents to deal with, especially when he's able to implement that calf kick. And that's exactly what was on display that night against Bubba Jenkins. So good cash for Brendan Loughlin there. We had 1.35 units on one of the first fights of the night to go under two and a half. Dakota Decheva goes out there and just absolutely decimates uh, Catherine Korogenis, I believe her name was. 1.35 units at minus 135, cashes for one unit. I wish I went a little bit deeper on that, knowing the skill discrepancy, especially when this fight was on the feet, that uh, Dakota Decheva would be... Uh, uh, you know, benefiting benefiting from. So good work from Dakota there to get her out of there and solid work from us in terms of cashing the under two and a half spot. We also had a parlay here, 2.02 unit parlay at minus 101. Sab Sadabu C goes out there and puts on a relatively pedestrian type performance, but it was enough for him to get his hand raised over 25 minutes and take home that $1 million prize as well as the welterweight strap for the PFL that season. You know, most people would not be enthused with that type of performance from C. But me, I'm more than happy to take a boring decision victory as long as you're going out there and doing exactly what you need to do to win. That's exactly what Sabadu did that night. And then to close it out, uh, Olivia Balmercier knocking out Stevie Ray. I believe it was the end of the second or the third round, but good performance from him there to cash that ticket, take home that lightweight title, as well as that lightweight million dollar check that the PFL was given out. So he cashed that parlay for two units. And then in the main event, we go one and one in the main event, but still come out with profit. We had one and a half units on the over two and a half, which was at plus 110. Great performance from Larissa Pacheco comes out and pulls off the upset victory taking three rounds to two but uh you know i have wanted nothing to do with that harrison shock so i decided to take a half unit shot on her to win by decision which is how she won the first two fights at plus 240 that's minus 0.5 units there but in the main event we end up plus 1.15 units thanks to that over two and a half Looking back at it now, I wish I kind of went with the fight goes to decision as a half unit shot rather than taking the uh, Kayla Harrison plus 240. I knew that was going to a distance, uh, going to a decision. And from there, it probably wouldn't end up being up close. Shout out to everybody that got in that on that plus money on Larissa Pacheco. Not the biggest upset in MMA history. So let's pump our brakes there. But still a great performance from Pacheco. And now that makes the 2023 season of PFL a very interesting. Especially if both these women come back and try to reclaim what is theirs. Uh, so like I said, all in all, great performance over the last uh, two events. Uh, yeah, great performance over the last two events there. Plus 3.57 units for a 36% ROI on the PFL event. I believe uh, if you add it up together, that's about eight and a half units over the last two weeks from those from the last UFC event as well as the last PFL event. Although the Bellator event prior to that was a complete reverse sweep. So I don't want to take too much credit for the run that I'm on right now, but is what it is. All right, 
We are going to be shifting our uh, focus to UFC Orlando, which goes down this weekend. Like I said, uh, very interesting matchup sprinkled throughout it. But before I do that, I just want to give a quick shout out to the Patreon members that we have. We've hit that 350 member once uh, mark once again. And I think a lot of it has to do with the recent announcement that I made about taking on regional MMA promotions as well. Like I said a little bit earlier, LFA, PFL, CFFC, um, Cage Warriors, and Fury FC will all now be covered on my Patreon page. In terms of the YouTube world, I'll only be, re be releasing main event breakdowns for those cards, but then the full breakdowns can be seen on, or read I should say, as they will be in written form on my Best Bets and Props article on the Patreon. 15 bucks a month for all of my content. But if you only want to focus on Bellator, UFC, and the Contender Series, that's a measly $5 a month that I'm sure anybody can take advantage of. Like a little bit of money on that and then just upgrade to the regional MMA promotion tier so that we can try to cash almost every weekend considering there is an event every freaking weekend in the mixed martial arts world. So five bucks a month or $15 a month, link in the description below, check it out. Uh, I'm After I finish recording this and editing it and releasing it to you guys, I'm gonna get started on the Bellator breakdowns for the card that's going down next weekend. Uh, but the public won't be seeing that until fight week. But you guys, you special Patreon members, will be seeing them on the Bellator Best Bets and Props article that I start in the next, well, today, going over the next couple days as well. All right, let's not waste any more time. Let's get into the breakdowns for this UFC Orlando card. And let's start off in the women's flyweight division where we got 9-0 Yasmin Yadogui making her second walk to the octagon as a minus 300 favorite. She's going up against Estela Nunes who comes in with a 6-3 record and as a plus 250 underdog. Now, I think there is a bit of a hype train here starting on Yasmin Yadogui considering she's at minus 300 in this spot. Is she deserving of it? Probably, but I think that there's still other things that we need to find out about her game. I think she still has to go out there and fight legitimate competition to prove that she has what it takes to be a top-level uh, flyweight in this UFC division. Uh, and Estela Nunes will push her in the early going of this matchup. Yaragui, great striker, utilizes her wrestling when she needs to, but when she's at her best, she can utilize her combination striking from distance and piece up her opponents, similar to what she did in her debut uh, against uh, Yasmin Lucindo. I believe that took place at the UFC San Diego card back in August. Great debut from her, great uh, highlighting spot with her being the third fight from the top. Now she's the curtain jerker, but... This is the part of her career where she really starts to get everything together, start to dot those I's and cross those T's so that she can start to make a, um, a run in the rankings of this flyweight division and try to stamp out and clear out a space, space for herself in this UFC's flyweight division. With uh, Estela Nunes, you know, she's on hard times, 0-1-2 in the UFC, first loss coming to Ariani Carnalosi and her second one coming to Sam Hughes. Both of those due to the fact that she has a horrible gas tank. Now, she looks like a great fighter in the first round where she can put her strikes together, throw big power, and, you know, and on the regional scene, she's getting her opponents out of there. But when she's fighting tougher competition who can take those early shots, they're able to endure it, push her into the late parts of the fight. And we saw Carnalosi finish her in the third round. And Sam Hughes was damn near close to finishing her as well. But she picks up a decision victory that night. If she can do some early work here against Yadogui, that's probably how she gets, this, uh, gets her hand raised by winning the first two rounds. But I just think that she slows down a little bit too much. And considering the output and volume that she's going to be seeing from the Yadogui side, I think we see it start to slow down around 
around that six minute mark of this fight and that's where Yaragui starts to take over and potentially finishes her in the third round of this fight. I don't like getting tied to minus 300 chalk on somebody that's still carving their spot out in the UFC roster. But I think that Yaragui is a decent enough spot here to survive that early onslaught of Nunes, take over in the later parts of this round, and then possibly finish her in round three. So I'm going to go Yaragui round three TKO. But uh, let's see how she pans out with future opponents. Estella Nunes, I apologize, but this will likely be her pink slip fight out of the UFC. Next up, we go to the men's featherweight division, and we got the 16-8 Marcelo Rojo, who comes in as a plus-145 underdog, going up against UFC newcomer and contender series alum Francis Marshall, who comes in with a squeaky clean 6-0 record. He's the minus-170 favorite in this matchup. Now, Francis Marshall, like I said, coming off this most recent season of the contender series where he put on a great all-around performance dealing with a fighter that was very, you know, first minute or bust in a sense, right? With his opponent, Connor Matthews, he had finished four of his five opponents in less than a minute. And then his other opponent, he finished, I believe, two minutes or so into that first round. Never got out of the first round. That just showed how dangerous he was in the early going. And even though it might have been against tomato can level of opponents, he was still dangerous against a guy like uh, Francis Marshall, who needs a little bit more grooming. But Francis dealt with it very easily, landed takedowns, outstruck him on the feet, and showcased a great mixed martial arts performance to get his name signed on that dotted line so that he can make his UFC debut this weekend here against Marcelo Rojo. Now, Rojo on a little bit of a tough run, right? Obviously lost to Charles Jordan a couple fights back in a fight where, you know, it was relatively back and forth before Charles really dragged him into deep water and, uh, you know, forced Marcelo Rojo to drown late in that fight. I think there's 30 seconds left on the clock there when Charles Jordan got him out of there. Kyler Phillips utilized great movement, outside footwork, good striking and blitzing attacks, and then eventually a submission-heavy attack later on in this fight to get uh, Marcelo Rojo out of there. Rojo, at his best, is a berserker of a fighter. Likes to go out there and slug with his opponents, put pressure on his opponents, and try to knock them out. The majority of his wins coming via finish, and even on the flip side, you know, he's shown some decent durability and can make it to the 15-minute mark, but if opponents are able to put their foot on the gas late in fights, he usually succumbs to that. Francis Marshall here, a little bit green in my opinion to be backing him at minus 170 against a guy who's seen plenty of wars like Marcelo Rojo. He's going to be, or Rojo's going to be trying to convince Marshall to exchange with him in a slugfest and a firefight, but I'm not sure if the fire marshal, Francis Marshall, is going to oblige with that. I think we'll see Marshall implement his grappling here. Strike, you know, uh, his striking game is really meat and potatoes at this point in time. It's a lot of just one-twos using his speed and his explosiveness to be successful with that. But I haven't really seen him go out there and throw combinations or really be very effective with, uh, you know, a heavy striking game. He likes to get his opponents to the ground and drag them through the mud there. Sometimes he gets the finishes. Sometimes he's fine with just dragging them to the 15-minute mark and winning a judge's decisions like he just did uh, this past time against um, Connor Matthews on the contender series. The spot that I'm looking at that I've already pulled the trigger on is the over 1.5 at minus 160. I could see this fight easily going over the 7.5-minute mark. The only concern that I have is if Rojo really does get that slugfest that he wants early and Francis actually obliges. I'd be surprised if he obliges. He knows he's going to be outstruck on the feet, so there's no need to trade with a guy like Rojo on the feet. 
Rojo can hold his own on the ground, and I think that Marshall still has some grooming to do before he can actually be a, a you know a talented finisher on the mat, especially against a step up in competition. Which is why I like this fight to go deep into the rounds, and I think the deeper that this fight goes, the more success that Marshall is going to have in terms of holding Rojo down and controlling him in those positions, whether it's in the clinch or when he eventually gets the fight to the ground and controls him there. Uh, so rather than taking the chalk on Francis Marshall at minus 170 for him to win this fight's going to have to go deep and I think at minus 160 for the over one and a half which is only seven and a half minutes I think that's a damn good spot so I'm going to be pulling the trigger here on the over one and a half but I do think it's Francis Marshall who gets his hand raised here but let's see him go through a little bit more adversity let's see him go through a little bit more grooming before we trust him as a a favorite against a, a veteran of the mixed martial arts game all right, next up, let's get to the lightweight division where we have 7-1 Natan Levy going up against 10-1 Gennaro Valdez. We got minus 180 on Levy and plus 155 on Gennaro Valdez. Now, I don't really understand the hype on Natan Levy. He's only lost one fight, which was his last one against Rafa Garcia. But even when he's winning, I'm not very impressed with what I see. We can even go back and look two fights ago when he fought Mike Breeden, or I believe it was his... I can't recall, sorry, off the top of my head, whether it was Garcia or Breedon, but those were his last two fights. The Garcia fight, he got, you know, out-grappled there. We saw as that fight got longer and deeper, we saw Garcia go out there and just land takedowns at will and control Natan Levy and just get the better positions and land the uh, more valuable output. And you see in both of those last two fights, Levy starts to slow down as the fight goes on. Now, it's not to the point where you can go out there and just finish the guy. Like, uh, he took a hellacious beating from Mike Breeden in that third round, but he kept on chugging. He stayed in the game, and he stayed safe enough in those positions. But he was clearly the one losing that round. But luckily for him, he did enough in the first two rounds against Breeden to eventually get his hand raised via decision that thing. But I think a guy that can put the pressure on him from the jump will be more than live in this matchup. And that's what we're getting with Ganero Valdez. Valdez has never seen the judges scorecard. He's been in the third round one time in his career and he came out on top after facing some adversity early in that fight. He was able to uh, get the top position against his opponent and then rain down some big shots and get him out of there via TKO. Showcasing that he can battle through adversity. Showcasing that even though he hasn't been to the third round often, that he can deal with a heavy pace early on in fights and still come out on top later on. That was on perfect display in his fight and the contender series last year where he took on Patrick White in a slugfest where both guys had tremendous success in that first round. Uh, Patrick White hurting Gennaro Valdez on numerous occasions, but it was eventually Valdez who landed a big shot in the early going of that second round to put Patrick White out and eventually get his name signed to the UFC. He made his UFC debut against Matt Frivola in not the greatest of circumstances. It was a barn burner of a fight where Frivola pretty much had him covered in every aspect of that fight and eventually knocked him out after dropping him, I think, maybe four or five times in that first round. But he still managed to get that knockout in the ending of the first round. But Ganero, at his best, can land takedowns, is very uh, smothering from on top. And he'll be dealing with some adversity here against Levy, who's a very strong fighter in his own right. He's a black belt in karate and kung fu. And you can see that when he's striking because a lot of his uh, strikes come from kicks. He likes to throw spinning back kicks and teeps up the middle and just stay active with his kicks. But his his main goal, as you see whenever he gets his hand raised, is to drag fights to the ground. 
I am not the most impressed with his top position and his ability to control those spots, but he will be very dangerous in the early going here as he'll have the technical and speed advantages against Ganero Valdez, like I said, in the early going. But if Ganero can survive that early onslaught and drag this into deep waters in the second and third round, that's where I think that Levy starts to slow down and the pace and pressure of Valdez will start to catch up to him. The speed, the explosiveness, and the technical advantages will not mean as much as there is less and less gas in the tank of Natan Levy, which is why I like a small shot here on Valdez as the underdog. Just looking at uh, you know some of the words and, and thoughts that are out there about this matchup, a lot of people are writing off Valdez because of his last two fights, because he got knocked out by Matt Frivola, and because he had a life-and-death matchup against a guy like Patrick White. But if you look, if you scope out and look even further than that, yes, his level of competition on the regional scene is a little bit sketchy, but you see great things for him. And Tom Levy, let's be honest, you know, this guy might be a Patrick White level of fighter. He's not that great. You know, Mike Breeden almost beat this guy. So I'm going to lean on Valdez and maybe even a Valdez round three prop if it's juicy enough for me here. But I think that he survives the early onslaught and then later on really starts to put it on Natan Levy, lands his own takedowns, keeps roughing him up and wearing on him, and then eventually finishes him probably in the second or third round of this fight. I don't think Valdez is going to be a popular pick, nor a, prop, a popular prediction, but I do think that he is a side in this matchup considering how flaky Natan Levy can actually be. So give me Ganero Valdez, give me him inside the distance, and give him, give him, give me him a fight round three finish as well. Uh, again, most of the props not out by the time of this recording, so I'm just kind of thinking what they could potentially be. All right, next up, we got the women's flyweight division on display here as we have 10-1 Tracy Cortez coming in as a minus 105 underdog to 11-3 Amanda Hibas, who's coming in at minus 115. Now, this is a weird fight at this point in time, right? They're buried on the prelims. So both these women, at least Tracy Cortez, still a very promising prospect. Amanda Hibas, we've seen a little bit of her ceiling so far as she came up short against Marina Rodriguez back in January of 2021 and then most recently coming uh, or, or losing at the hands of uh, Catelyn Chukagin who just showcased uh, a much better striking game, more output. You know, that second round was close or at least uh, Amanda Hibas won that round because of the top position that she had but I believe that uh, Catelyn Chukagin was the one that was landing more devastating blows or more damaging blows which is why she ended up getting the decision that night. Hibas is tremendous when the fights are on the ground and she usually does her best work there and in the striking room I think her striking is decent like when she has a decided striking advantage over her opponents it looks really good right like she did against Verna Jandy Robot like it did against Mackenzie Dern but Tracy Cortez her striking is still improving so Amanda Hibas could probably have the uh, advantage in that realm but I think that Tracy Cortez's wrestling game will eventually be the difference maker in this fight now Amanda Hibas could potentially be dangerous off of her back but we've been seeing plenty of improvements since Tracy Cortez dropped her pro MMA debut via guillotine choke she just kept going in for desperation takedown after desperation takedown and she eventually paid for it as her opponent was able to latch on the neck and get that guillotine choke but we've seen uh, Tracy Cortez get caught in a ton of compromising positions since that uh, fight and she's done a very good job in terms of staying calm and composed and allowing her discipline to take over so that she can get out of those bad positions and then get back into her dominant position where she's able to either control her opponent or do enough damage on the on top where she can get that decision victory. 
knowing that her significant other is Brian Ortega, you got to believe that they've been working on her jiu-jitsu defense, especially with her having such a grapple-heavy approach. She's going to have to make sure that her I's are dotted and her T's are crossed when she's in those top positions against Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belts. We saw it on display against Melissa Gato, and I'm not sure if Gato is a black belt off the top of my head, but she is very offensive off of her back, but we saw Cortez stay very safe and control that fight for the majority of it. Amanda Kibas, probably a better version of Melissa Gato everywhere. Maybe Gato has a little bit more fight-ending threats than Amanda Hibas does, but we saw Tracy Cortez deal with that fight very, uh, uh, you know, very easily, and I think that she could do the same thing here against Amanda Hibas. There will be a little bit more threat just because of the technical advantages that uh, Amanda Hibas will have in certain aspects of this fight, but I think that Tracy Cortez will land those takedowns when she needs to, and she'll be good enough with her take or submission defense that it will allow her to grind out Amanda Hibas and get her hand raised by decision. So if you got in on that plus money on Tracy Cortez earlier uh, last week, shout out to you. If you're able to still get plus money on her, shout out to you as well. But I think that Cortez is the side, and I think she'll get her hand raised via decision. All right, let's flip on over to the men's featherweight division here, where we have veteran Darren Elkins with a 27-10 and 10 record, and coming in as a plus 360 underdog, something that he's used to at this point in his career, going up against a JSP, Jonathan Pierce, who's at a minus of 450 price tag with the 13-4 and 4 professional record. I just don't understand why they continue to feed Darren Elkins to some of these, you know, up-and-comers who have hellacious finishing abilities and guys that will more than likely, you know, force Darren Elkins to lose a couple of years off of his life. This is a horrible matchup for Darren Elkins, especially in the early going. Now, we've seen Jonathan Pierce slow down later on in fights when he couldn't really get his way, but I don't think that's going to be an issue here. I think we'll see him put that big power on Darren Elkins here, utilize his speed and power advantage here, and get Darren Elkins out of there within the first round or so. You know, he has heavy grappling and heavy top pressure, which I think will be in play here in the early going, but should he start to slow down and Darren Elkins start to take over the later that this fight goes, I think this could get a little bit iffy. But I'd be surprised if Darren Elkins provides enough resistance for Jonathan Marti or Jonathan Pierce to go out there and, and you know lose to a guy like Darren Elkins. The spot that I'm kind of you know circling and have my eyes on is the under two and a half. I'm currently seeing it around that minus one thirty five range, which I think is a steal of a price, considering that the vast majority of Jonathan Pierce's win condition here is tied to him finishing uh, Darren Elkins early on in this matchup. So I'll likely be tying myself to the under two and a half rather than the chalk on Jonathan Pierce in case something crazy happens and Darren Elkins ends up finishing Jonathan Pierce the later on that this fight goes. But I think that Pierce has all the advantages here from the youth to the athleticism to the striking to the wrestling to, to pretty much everything. The only thing that Darren Elkins has Jonathan Pierce beat on is heart. And I don't think that's going to be enough for him to get his hand raised in this spot. So give me Jonathan Pierce early going uh, round one. Jonathan Pierce, if you want as well. Jonathan Pierce inside the distance. But all in all, under two and a half, probably the best lined uh, odds and prop for this matchup for us to catch that ticket. So give me the under two and a half, but Jonathan Pierce inside the distance. Excuse me. All right, let's get to the lightweight division now where we have 20 and 18 Michael Johnson coming in as a plus 230 underdog going up against a Mark Diacasey who's 16 and 5 and comes in as a minus 275 favorite. Now, Mark Diacasey, we've seen a complete reverse of his game uh, over his last two fights. Now, I'm not saying that he hasn't wrestled in the past because if you do enough digging, you'll see that he likes to go wrestling, go to the wrestling when he needs to, but you see him 
very much emphasize it over his last two fights. I believe combined over his last two fights, he's landed nine takedowns as well as controlling 26 out of the 30 minutes of competition that he's faced over those last two fights. Absolutely insane. Now, he came into the UFC mainly known as a flashy striker, and you saw it on display in his early fights. But as he starts taking some lumps and starts taking some losses, you see him become a more well-rounded mixed martial artist by going to his grappling more often. And I think as a better, that's something that a lot of people really enjoy. You know, I think that we'll see him go out there and utilize his grappling advantage once again here against Michael Johnson, who, you know, a very stale record at 2018 or 20 and 18. But I think he's probably the best fighter of all time with that type of win percentage. The guy is a great uh, striker. The guy throws in combinations and he has good power, but he just has really fallen on tumultuous times over his last you know, several years. I think he only has one win over his last six or seven fights, if I'm remembering correctly off the top of my head. But I think that, uh, you know, D.A. Casey has a good enough striking game to stand and bang with Michael Johnson for as long as he needs to until he can change levels, get the fight to the ground, and control Johnson from there. Now, I, I love backing fighters like this that are reliable and going out there and doing what we need them to do, and especially if they have that advantage over their opponent. You saw Stevie Ray steal an almost entire round off of Michael Johnson in round three because Johnson could do nothing in terms of getting up off of his back. He is phenomenal in the striking realm, but he has a lot to work on in his grappling. And at this age and at this point of his career, I just don't think that those improvements are going to come. So I do like Mark D. Casey here. I like him to win by decision. If you can get some plus money on that, probably worth a stab. But Mark D. Casey has a parlay piece. Probably not a bad idea, as there are some other chalky spots on this card, which I'm sure are surefire spots too. So give me Mark D. Casey, D. Casey by decision, and maybe another five takedowns from here. We'll see. All right, let's get to the lightweight division here where we have Clay the Carpenter Guida still doing the damn thing. Coming in with a 37-22 and 22 record, he comes in as the plus-130 underdog to Scott Holtzman, who's minus-150, and comes in with a 14-5 and five professional MMA record. Now, Holtzman on a two-fight losing streak, but can you really blame him when he's losing to guys like Benio Dariush and Matoush Gamrot? You know, those are very tough opponents for him to come up against. And he got finished in both of those fights. Luckily, he's taken over a year and a half off to get his facilities back about him and get himself back into the shape that's required to be competitive in the UFC. And luckily for him, I think the UFC is tossing him softball here in Clay Guida. Now, Clay Guida is still live to pull off upsets every now and then, right? Like He did it against Michael Johnson a couple fights ago where he just landed takedowns and was the more active fighter. And there was nothing that Johnson can do to uh, stop that. But Scott Holtzman, solid takedown defense, good striking, more athletic, more powerful. Luckily, he has big power in his hands that he could potentially finish Clay Guida in this fight. Um, but even at minus 150, I think he's a good enough spot here. Now, he turned 39 in September, and to a lot of people, that would be a big red flag. But... I believe Clay Guida is turning 41 in, you know, I want to say a, a week or so after this fight. Like, he's up there in age two, and he has a tremendous amount of wear and tear on his body. That is obviously on display, knowing that he has 22 professional losses on his record. Now, Scott Holtzman has defeated a, a fighter of Clay Guida's era recently in Jim Miller a couple years back, right? I think that was two years ago, right before the pandemic hit. He showcased that he can hang with the guys with that level of experience, but guys that are starting to dwindle and slow down in their careers. And that's exactly what I'm thinking we're getting here with Clay Guida. 
So Clay might be live a little bit earlier in this fight where he can land takedowns and maybe get up on, on the output. But I think as the damage starts to wear on from Holtzman and he starts to land more and more on Guida, I think Holtzman is going to start to take over. And I think that Holtzman eventually finishes Guida as well. So give me Scott Holtzman here. I love the minus 150 line on him. I think that's a bit of a steal. And I think there's a little bit of recency bias there considering the fact that Scott hasn't been in the cage for a year and a half. Considering the fact that Scott has been on a two-fight losing streak, especially both of them coming via finish. But Clay Guida doesn't really have any finishing threat about him, which makes me even more confident on the Scott Holtzman side. So give me Holtzman, Holtzman inside the distance. Uh, and I think this is a successful return for him here. All right, next up, we got the women's straw weights going at it. We got veteran Angela Hill coming in as a plus 105 underdog with a 14 and 12 record. And then on the flip side, we got Emily Ducati with the 12 and 6 record coming into her second UFC fight as the minus 125 favorite. Now, tremendous debut from um, uh, Emily Ducati. Sorry, I just stumbled on her word, uh, on her name there for a second, but. Tremendous debut for her there against a very close friend of Angela Hill where uh, Emily Ducati just tore up that lead leg of Jessica Penne eventually going on to win a decision victory. Now, she won't have the comfort of being able to lean on that calf kick here against a girl like Angela Hill who's way more uh, in that or apt with the... Um, or apt, I should say, with the striking game. You know, she has a kickboxing background, and that's usually how she goes out there and win her, wins her fights, just like she did against Lupita Godinez last time around. Now, everybody wants to shit on Lupi Godinez for not being able to land takedowns and only throwing or attempting three takedowns in, the, in that entire 15-minute fight. If you told me that before the fight, I would be like, okay, maybe Angela Hill ends up winning this fight, and that's exactly what happened. She pulled off the big upset, and now everybody is all over Angela Hill, showcasing the recency bias-driven uh, MMA betting public that we surround ourselves with. But you got to really temper those expectations and really just look at it as a whole and not just off their last performance. Looking specifically at the Angela Hill versus Godinez performance, the reason that Godinez could not attempt more than three takedowns was that Angela Hill did a great job in terms of feinting and throwing strikes that are very difficult for wrestlers to get around. And what I mean by that is the uppercuts. You know, you want to connect with that uppercut whenever somebody changes levels. And I think that's what Lupi Godinez was scared of that night. The knee up the middle. That's something that Angela Hill was fainting a lot as well. But here with Emily Ducati, she's a little bit more comfortable in the striking range than Lupi Godinez is, at least in my opinion. You know, mixing in her kicking with her striking and with her speed, I think she can mask her takedowns a little bit better than what Lupi Godinez was able to do. My only qualm here is that Godinez is, you know, this is only, or sorry, uh, Ducati, this is only her second fight in the UFC. She's been fighting deep, decent competition on the regional scene. And, you know, I believe that she's a much better fighter than that three fight losing streak she was on uh, when she got kicked out of Bellator, at least got, you know, released from Bellator, you know, losing to um, uh, Ali Malay McFarlane and a couple of, other, of the other women that she lost to Vida Ortega, I believe, was one of them as well. You saw that she was still a little bit raw. She was only 23 years old back then. Now, a part of American Top Team, five years removed from that three-fight losing streak, she's looking like she's the best she's ever been. You know, especially after that Danielle Taylor knockout that she had uh, a couple years ago. Beautiful finish there, beautiful head kick knockout. One of the most, the, the cleanest knockouts we've probably ever seen in women's mixed martial arts. That's not a Jessica Andrade fight. But she has a great all-around game. I just want to see her fight legitimate competition and still come out on top before I pay chalk on her. 
if she was the underdog in this matchup i'd be you know intrigued to take a shot on her here but i'd rather just sit back and watch this fight as a spectator and see how she does against a girl with or a woman i should say of angela hill's caliber Hill, you know, a mediocre, uh, middle-of-the-road type fighter, but she can still go out there and expose fighters that are not well-rounded enough, just as she did against Lupi Godinez last time around. So give me Ducati. I think that her uh, mix of striking and grappling will give her the edge in this fight. Uh, I think she wins it via decision. And if I can get it around that minus... You know, if I can get plus money on Ducati here, actually, to win by decision, I might take a little bit of a shot on her. But I do think she has the better overall game here. Um, she should be able to shut down the volume-driven game of Hanjale Hill by landing takedowns when she needs to. And then even on the feet, I think she can land her strikes, get out of the range of Angela Hill when she needs to. And then, again, ultimately, her game plan should be around takedowns because that will likely be what scores with the judges and gets her hand raised here. So give me Ducati, Ducati via decision. All right, next up in the men's welterweight division, we got 15 and 5 Nico Price taking on Phil Rowe, who's coming in at 9 and 3, minus 140 right now on Nico Price, and plus 120 the return on Philly Fresh Phil Rowe. Um, interesting fight here, right? Both guys long, lanky guys. Phil Rowe likes to utilize that range a little bit more with his crisp shots down the middle, his combination striking, and his kicking game, but I still think that there's some greenness to his game, and I think that he might struggle a little bit with the pace and pressure that Nico Price likes to put on his opponents. You know, we saw Gabe Green really bring the fire to Phil Rowe, and especially in a fight where Gabe has to make up for that size and reach discrepancy that he was at, he made the most of it and ended up coming out with his hand raised via decision that night ryan cosey uh, had some early grappling success but it ultimately came down to the gas tank of phil Rowe, which allowed him to get that finish in the second round similar to what he was able to do against jason witt after dealing with the grappa heavy approach as well but nico price solid gas tank and has showcased over his last couple of fights that he doesn't mind going after a grappa heavy approach if he needs to and that's likely what he's going to have to do here against phil Rowe who might technically be the better striker here, but the fact that he throws in combinations and, and more volume makes him a little bit more dangerous on the feet than what Nico Price will bring. But Nico Price has fight-ending power. His first 11 fights in the UFC did not see the judges' scorecards because of how wild this man is. You know, I used to lean on a lot of his violence bets to cash some tickets, but over his last three fights, they've all seen the distance. But that doesn't come without the fact that he could still go out there and throw and possibly land on uh, on Phil Rowe here and potentially put him up. But I think we're going to see a grapple heavy approach early from Nico Price here. And I think that will allow him to get that dominant position that he needs to eventually get that TKO finish from on top or potentially even a submission with one of his nasty chokes with his long gangly arms that he has. I just I think Phil Rowe could be a decent prospect, but I want to see him go out there and endure the war a little bit more before I actually trust him uh, to go out there and cash some tickets for me. Nico Price has fight or has faced the top of the top of this division and has held his own against some of them as well. And I think he's going to cause this fight to become a war, to become chaotic. And I think Phil Rowe is just not accustomed, nor is he comfortable in that type of fight. So I think that we see Nico Price drag Rowe into deep waters here and then eventually finish him. I like the minus 140 price tag on the experienced veteran, and that's probably the way that I'll be going for this matchup. Nico Price inside the distance. Let's go. All right, let's move up a division here as we go up to the middleweights as a 14 and 7 Eric Anders comes in as a plus 170 underdog to the Darce Knight 11 and 3 Kyle Dawkins who comes in at minus 200. Now Dawkins fell short as a minus 230-ish favorite last time around against Roman Delize where he got outworked and out uh 
well, outworked early and then eventually knocked out in the early going of that first round, really showcasing... You know, Roman Delizia, who we're going to be talking about a little, uh, little bit later on in this matchup, uh, showcasing, you know, Doc is, still needs a little bit of work, right? His wins are against relatively mediocre competition, right? Jamie Pickett uh, and uh, Dustin Stoltzfus are the two names that come to mind at, at first. But, like, you believe that he has more of a skill set uh, to even get wins over guys better than that. Against guys like Eric Anders, potentially. But my qualm and my holdup here comes, you know, that, that Kyle Dawkins versus Phil Haas fight. He was landing some good strikes on the feet, but he could not contend with the grappling nor the um, the, the strength of Phil Haas. And that's what Eric Anders is going to be bringing here. Eric Anders has long been getting by with his athletic and physical advantages that he has over his opponents. The guy used to be a college football player, and you can see in the way that he fights and how he goes about his game. He's very physical. He wants to control you as much as possible. He wants to try to drag you to the ground and do solid work from there. His striking game still needs a little bit of work, in my opinion. Dawkins might have the slight advantage in that realm, but it's not to a point where it's going to look like Israel Adesanya versus, you know, uh, uh, freaking Jared Cannon here or something like that. That's not how this fight's going to look at all. My concern is really with Ken. Dawkins get the positions that he needs can Dawkins get this fight to the ground and can he deal with the strength of Eric Anders because if he can't he's going to get tied up against the cage for a long period of time and I just don't know how much he can really do about it so I'm honest to wonder I really can't trust Kyle Dawkins to go out there and get a win over a guy like Eric Anders and then with the limited skill set that Eric Anders brings to the table I can't get tied up with the plus 170 on his price tag either the spot that I'm looking at that I might pull the trigger on that I have a little bit of confidence in is the over two and a half which is sitting at minus 175 at the time of this recording. I don't see, you know, uh, you know, th- there's potential that Anders could find the chin of Dawkins and, and put him out there. That's possible. And there's a chance that if Kyle Dawkins gets this fight to the ground, he can pull off a submission victory. But I think all in all, the way that this fight goes is a lot of clinching, a lot of grappling, a lot of jockeying for position, and then maybe Kyle Dock is getting the better of those positions and possibly landing the better strikes on the feet by being more active in that realm and then getting the decision because he's the one that was at least doing a little bit more damage, right? We saw that, you know, a little bit controversial in the Eric Anders and Jun Young Park last time around where a lot of people thought Jun Young Park should have lost that fight because he was the one getting control for the majority of that fight and Eric Anders was the one pressing the entire time. But Eric Anders wasn't really backing it up with much damage. Jun Young Park was the one that outstruck him by nearly 50 or 40 significant strikes, but he was the one in the defensive position for the majority of that fight. So I understand why people are up in arms about that decision, but I still don't think it's enough uh, for Anders to have gotten his hand raised because the main objective of every fight and the main criteria for every fight is damage. And that's where Kyle Dawkins could potentially get up here against Eric Anders. So the over two and a half for uh is probably where i would put my money if i bet this fight at all but i do like uh call Dawkins to get his hand raised and for his, him, him to get his hand raised via decision but i want none of that minus 200 line all right let's stick in the middleweight division here where we have 23 and 7 jack hermanson taking on 11 and 1 roman delize jack hermanson coming in as a minus 170 favorite and roman delize coming in at plus 145 now delize Came in as a short notice step up as Derek Brunson unfortunately had to pull out of this fight. And I was very much liking Derek or Jack Hermanson in that fight. But 
we're not going to get it. Uh, so now we got a different puzzle here for Jack Hermanson. And this one gives me a little bit more pause than anything, right? Jack Hermanson, we saw that he can go out there and stay on his bicycle and outstrike, you know, superior strikers by just staying out of range and just landing kicks and punches every now and then and staying out of danger like he did against Chris Curtis. Good win for him there. You know, his his takedown game leaves a lot to be desired. It's only 27% accuracy rate, but he's known as a wrestler. He's known as a guy that can grapple you and do some decent work on the mat. He might struggle to get Delize to the ground here. And if he does, I could see him going out there and doing what he did against Chris Curtis by winning this fight by staying uh, you know active enough from the outside and just touching him up. Roman Delize, that guy's a fighter, right? The guy do, makes a lot of fight IQ mistakes and a lot of like, um, you know, technical mistakes, but... You can't count out that this guy's a fighter. The guy goes out there, underdog in his last two fights, if I'm not mistaken, and knocks out both of his opponents, Carl Dawkins and Phil Hawes. He's always going to get disrespected because he'll always be at a, a little bit of a disadvantage when it comes to the skill set. But the fact that this guy just loves to fight, go forward and throw haymakers at you, that's the reason he'll usually get his hand raised. We saw a different approach in the Laureano story of Holy fight where he just looked to grapple and get Staropoli to the ground. He didn't get off much damage there, but the fact that he controlled it for the majority of the fight and Staropoli couldn't get anything off, that's the reason that Dolize ended up getting his hand raised. But uh, here against Hermanson, he might not have that success. You know, I think Hermanson might end up being the stronger fighter once these guys end up clinching him. And I think that's what likely get uh, Hermanson the advantage here. But I'm, I'm done fading Delize, right? I'm done betting chalk, or at least heavy chalk against Roman Delize. Hermanson should win this fight. You know, minus 170, not too bad of a line, considering his skill set over Delize. But Delize, the guy spoils the party over and over again. I need somebody a little bit more reliable than Jack Hermanson before I uh, get tied up with a price tag like this, fading Roman Delize. Uh, you know, Hermanson, we've seen him struggle to assert his game. And when he can't get his game going, he starts to deter and his opponents are start to, uh, are able to take over. That's my concern here because the Legion will absolutely smell that little bit of breaking, that little bit of fear. And if he gets any type of blood, he's going to go in it like a shark and eventually finish Hermanson. The spot that I'm looking at, which there are no odds out for it yet, but if if it's any better than, you know, minus 120, the over two and a half is probably where I would put my money. I think Hermanson will dictate how this fight goes, whether it's with the clinching, even if he's failing on takedowns, I think he'll clinch up, then break out into space, and then get back to the game plan that he had against Chris Curtis, which is just stay on the outside and touch him up. He doesn't have as much real estate to work with here as he did when he fought Chris Curtis, but I still think he'll find a way to make it effective and do what he needs to do against a guy like Delize, who, again, the guy's a meathead at sometimes. I think I, I just don't think he has the the fight IQ to you know cut off the cage or to get Hermanson into those compromising positions. But he could. Hermanson might fumble the bag here because this is a tremendously different. Uh, stylistic matchup than what he was preparing for when he was uh, getting ready for Derek Brunson instead. So I'll still go with Hermanson as my prediction. I'm going to take the over two and a half likely as a bet. That will likely be the spot that I pull the trigger on if I bet it at all. Um, But beware of deletes it. This this man is just a wild man. That's all I got to (laughs) say. All right. Let's get to the heavyweight division here. We have where we have 15 and 4 Tai Tuivasa coming in as a plus 165 underdog. He's going up against Sergey Pavlovich, who's 16 and 1, who's a, at a minus 195 favorite price tag. Now, Pavlovich lost his UFC debut against Alistair Overeem, where he got grounded and absolutely pummeled to smithereens, but since then has batted a pretty, you know, flawless uh, record to that point. 
finishing all of his opponents, which is not usual of him, right? If you look back at his regional scene, there was a long period of time where he would just go out there and decision his opponents, outstriking them on the feed, landing some takedowns, and just doing enough to win a decision. But now it seems like he's very much uh, um, loving the power in his hands and putting that on display against his opponents. Um, here against Tuivasa, he's going to have to worry about that big power coming back his way, not to mention the leg kicks that are going to be coming his way as well. Tuivasa, that's kind of his game. He's a slugger that likes to throw a big power on the feet, but he likes to set it up by damaging the lead leg of his opponents and then reaping the fruits of his labor after that. My, my, my kind of lean here is the over here at plus 170 and the reason i think we're getting that price tag is because of the recent finishes from both of these guys you know obviously tied to Ivasa was forced to go deep into his matchup against uh Cyril Gon before Gon was able to knock him out in the third round but i could see this being a slow drawn out fight i could see both guys respecting the power of each other and this being you know creeping into the second possibly even third round uh, I could see Pavlovich even looking to get the takedown and uh, keeping Tuivasa static up against the cage and, and and just roughing him up there and eating up minutes off the clock from those positions. But then, man, it's heavyweight at the end of the day. And if these guys really want to throw and, and try to land that big power, both of these guys believe they can knock the other guy out. And that should be enough that either guy will just throw caution to the wind and they might end up paying for it or they might end up getting their hand raised by landing that big shot as well. I, I do believe Pavlovich has more paths to victory here, but I just can't get tied up to that minus 195 line concerning Tuivasa, his leg kicks, and the power that he possesses. So I'd rather maybe take the over 1.5 at plus 170, as that's a much better price tag than, my, than the minus 195. And I do think that Pavlovich, like I said, has more ways of winning this fight, and he likely can stay safer than what Tuivasa will end up being able to do. So I, I like Pavlovich here. I like him to win by decision. I like the over one and a half the most, but it's fucking heavyweights, guys. This is a very volatile fight. I know more than likely to be keeping my name off of it, or at least my money off of it. All right, next up, men's flyweight division. We got 18-2-1, Matias and Nicolau coming in as a minus 365 favorite. Being the big underdog is never anything new for the 16-7 and or. Uh, I should say Math, Matt Snell. I want to say Matthias Snell, but no, it's Matthias Nicolau. Matt Snell coming in at plus 300. Now, uh, looking back at Nicolau's record, right? I, I've been big on the guy. I've had him as a locker than I play a couple times. Impressed with the striking game. He has a good takedown game. Great jiu-jitsu as well. He is the better overall fighter here. Don't get me wrong. But the guy fights relatively competitive with his opponents. And at a minus 365 price tag, you think a lot of people would expect him to just go out there and knock out Matt Schnell, and that's why he's a big favorite. That's why I think he's a big favorite. But I expect this fight to go, you know, it could potentially go the full 20 or 15 minutes, right? And if it does, and if it remains a kickboxing matchup, Matt Schnell has great combinations and great speed, and that could potentially allow him to get a leg up here against Matthias Nicolau, Nicolau I should say. Uh, Nicolau, uh, again, he will likely land the more damaging blows, but I think the volume and the output of Matt Schnell could cause some issues here for Nicolau. Again, should Nicolau not get the finish? So I don't want to get to, tied to the minus 365, but the under two and a half and the Nicolau inside the distance is likely where I would put my money because I think that Schnell has tremendous durability issues. And I think Nicolau has enough power in his hands to put down and out uh, a, a guy like Matt Schnell. 
So the under two and a half currently around that minus one ten range. We'll see where the public starts to drive that line. If it gets to plus money, I think that'll be a good play. But I would rather take Nicolau inside the distance than parlaying his minus three sixty five line. Schnell always overlooked, always disrespected by the public. But when this guy can survive uh, the onslaught of his opponents, he makes it very hard for his opponents to get their hand raised. So uh, I'll still go with Nicolau. Just be careful about the chalk. Take him inside the distance as I believe for him to look minus 365, he's going to have to finish this fight inside the distance. So I'll go Nicolau, Nicolau inside the distance. Under two and a half, uh, intriguing spot. But I still think that uh, Nicolau gets his hand raised in here in this fight. All right, co-main event. Like I said, top two fights are taking place in the welterweight division. The first of which between 31 and 14, Rafael Dos Anjos coming in as a minus 540 favorite. He returns to the welterweight division to take on Brian Barbarena coming in with an 18 and 8 record with a plus 420 underdog price tag. Now, Brian Barbarena in his last two fights dispatched of Matt Brown and Robbie Lawler in tremendously, uh, you know, warlike um, slugfest type fights, more so the Robbie Lawler fight than the Matt Brown fight. But Brian Barbarena seems to be on the streak of wanting to go out there and finishing legends and beating legends. And Rafael Dos Anjos is the next one up. Unfortunately for Brian Barbarena, I think he's going to be outgunned here. Dos Anjos has showcased that he has a tremendous MMA game. This guy mixes up his striking well behind his takedowns and that allows him to get that top position to control his opponents and really make them work from that position. Brian Barbarena has showcased that he can struggle in those spots, right? Jason Witt, able to get him down, grind him out, land big shots and win that fight via decision. And then we've also seen Brian Barbarena put his big power on people and get them out of there. But I really think that Dos Anjos is way too complete here. And even though he's getting up there in age, I still think he's complete enough to beat a guy like Barbarena. Barbarino is going to hope that he can land a big shot on uh, Dos Anjos here and finish him. But I think that Dos Anjos will be mixing up his strikes, his speed, and his takedowns too well for Barbarino to catch him. I wouldn't even be surprised if Dos Anjos ends up getting a submission victory of some sort. But giving Barbarino's durability, giving his uh, knack for staying in fights, I'm going to say Dos Anjos by decision. But I am not going to bat an eye at anybody that wants to parlay Dos Anjos at this price tag. He is the far superior fighter, right? We just saw him go out there and, you know, have four solid rounds against a guy in Honato Moicano who's way better than Barbarina. And again, I get it. Moicano came in off the boat, drinking and smoking and on short notice, but he showcased a great game plan there. Showed a solid game plan against Fiziev, who is far superior than Brian Barbarina, although Fiziev did finish Dos Anjos late in that fight. But this is a three-round fight. This is not a five-round fight. Dos Anjos has more than enough gas tank and... Uh, durability to put on a pressure and pace on uh, Barbarina that Barbarina will not be able to keep up with. So I think Dos Anjos, you know, I'd call him a lock of the night essentially, but you would never want to bet a minus 540 straight up like that. But like I said earlier on in this podcast, there are some good uh, chalky spots that you can parlay up for some surefire spots. And I think the Dos Anjos will be an integral part of that. Um, again, I'm not fully sold on his method of victory here, but I am pretty much sold on the fact that he will win this fight without too much issue so let's go dos Anjos. i'll say dos Anjos by decision just for the sake of this podcast but just go ahead and parlay him if you want all right that brings us to our main event of the evening we got welterweights going at it here uh wonder boy thompson coming in with the 16 6 and 1 record he's coming in at plus 120 the 23 and 8 kevin holland comes in as the minus 140 favorite now i think wonder boy thompson is breathing a sigh of relief after he doesn't have to fight a 
you know, a grapple-heavy fighter here. His last two fights, Gilbert Burns and Bilal Muhammad managed to take him down and control him for the majority of their fights, and there was nothing that Wonderboy could do about that. Kevin Holland, more of a striker here, but he can use his grappling if he wants. I just don't know how effective he'll be with it against a guy like Wonderboy Thompson, who, you know, prior to those last two fights that he's had, was pretty good with, you know, stuffing takedowns, getting to his feet, and just getting back to the range that he needs to let his karate style go. Now, should this fight play out in the striking realm? I think that Thompson will have the advantage. I get it. He's getting up there in uh, age, but he showcased that when he fights other strikers, you know, guys like Vicente Luque and Jeff Neal, that he can go out there and get away from their big power while still uh, showcasing his kicking game and his karate game, which has made him successful in the UFC. Kevin Holland, with his range and his size, might make it a little bit more difficult for Thompson to get that game off. But I think that the the traps and the puzzles that Stephen Wonderboy Thompson sets for his opponents might be a little bit for to, uh, Kevin Holland to to analyze and try to break down and then eventually to try to exploit. Uh, the, the speed and the power of Holland is a little bit concerning as well, which is why I want a little bit of a better price tag on Thompson before I pull the trigger on him. He's sticking around plus 120, and I think the fight was close to a pick earlier last week, but it seems like that Kevin Holland love and hype is starting to come in on the money line, and I want to see how much this line continues to climb throughout fight week. So if I can get that Thompson plus 150, I'll likely pull the trigger there. But I'm going to stay patient. You know, there is no rush, and there is no need to force a bet on a spot that I feel a little bit sketchy about. Uh, again, the age might catch up to Thompson here, and Kevin Holland might look to take a grapple-heavy approach knowing how easily other opponents have been able to do it. And Kevin Holland, apparently a black belt in jiu-jitsu, again, doesn't usually nor, uh, doesn't normally uh, lean on the, that. He likes to showcase his striking. And knowing that he's in a main event slot in front of a sold-out crowd here, he might be goaded into just going out there and slugging it out with Wonderboy Thompson. That will not benefit him here as Wonderboy is one of the best strikers the UFC has ever seen in terms of hitting without getting hit. And I think that's going to be the reason he likely comes out on top in this matchup. Close fight. But I do lean Thompson here, especially against another striker. He should showcase why he was so successful in the UFC by outmaneuvering Kevin Holland on the feet, landing the better strikes, possibly even landing a couple uh, knockdowns here, which should allow him to get his hand raised via decision. So Thompson v. Decision plus 400 worth a little bit of a sprinkle no matter where the money line is at. But I think that he is a superior striker here as long as his durability and his takedown defense should Holland look to attack it that way. As long as those things hold up, he should be able to get the better strikes off here and get his hand raised via decision. There you guys go. Full UFC Orlando breakdown for you guys. Um, all I think that's 14 fights. They might have been 15, but I think they lost one as well. But a tremendous amount of fights on the card here. Hope you guys enjoyed the breakdowns. Hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. Hit that like and subscribe if you haven't already. And if you want early access to the Bellator 289 breakdowns, I'm going to get started on those later today. This is Monday of Fight Week for UFC Orlando. Bellator doesn't take place until December 9th, which is still a full 12 or 13 days away. But the Patreon members are going to get a nice and early sneak peek at that as I start to break down the Best Bets and Props article over the next couple days. Not just that, but the LFA is back in town as well. And those breakdowns will be on the regional MMA tier of the Patreon starting hopefully by the end of this week or early next week. Uh, keep your eyes out for that uh, LFA, Fury FC and Cage Warriors all going down uh, I think, sorry, CFFC, all four promotions going down in December and all four of those uh, events will be fully broken down on the Patreon as well so make sure you guys check that out alright, going for my third straight winning event this week and hopefully with UFC Orlando picks will be free for the public on Friday before the fights but 
I've already gotten four bets down, only available on the Patreon. At least you don't have to wait till Friday in case line movement and all that stuff. Hop on the Patreon right now and you can get those bets for uh, this card and lock them in as well. Lock of the night play for this weekend coming up as well. Haven't placed it yet. Waiting for limits to open up. Once they do, I will place it and the Patreon members get that first and foremost. All right. I'm going to quit rambling on and and being a salesman over here. Appreciate all the love. Appreciate all the support. I'll see you guys throughout the week. As always, propping you up on Thursday with Crody. Friday, I have a different format for the Ultimate Wayne Show I'll be doing. Stay tuned for that. But I'll be going live for that as well. So check that out. Love you guys. Appreciate you guys. Good luck on your bets this week. Peace.